Specialty Stories, session number 157. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm excited that you have chosen to take some time to listen to the podcast today. I have an amazing guest. I have Dr. Anita Sheljikar, a sleep medicine specialist and the director of the University of Michigan Sleep Medicine Fellowship Program. We talk about how Dr. Sheljikar got interested in sleep medicine and the training pathway to get there, the lifestyle of a sleep medicine specialist, and much more. We started the conversation by how Dr. Sheljikar became interested in sleep medicine to begin with. Sure. So I went to medical school with the intention of being a pediatrician, and I did my first rotation my third year of medical school in pediatrics and realized very quickly that I could not be a pediatrician. (laughs) Um, I love children. I had a hard time seeing really young kids who were sick. And I think at that point in my life, I had a hard time kind of understanding that, understanding the context of that, um, and realized quickly that, you know, while I love kids, I couldn't be their doctor. And then went through the rest of my core rotations, as you know, we all did in medical school and did neurology because it was a required experience and ended up falling in love with it. I fell in love with the neurological exam. I loved localization. Uh, I loved seeing kind of the neuroanatomy that we learned about earlier in medical school come to life with our patients. And so I went into medical school aspiring to be a pediatrician and came out of medical school ready to start a residency in uh, adult neurology. (laughs) So um, it was a fun journey, but yeah, I I absolutely fell in love with the patients and the exam, and that's what drew me to neurology. So I did my neurology residency um, at Emory University in Atlanta and loved it. And one of the attendings I worked with when I was a senior resident on the inpatient service was a sleep medicine specialist. And he started asking patients about their sleep. And at first, we, you know, all of us on the team would kind of like snicker, like, okay, here's an admitted patient. Why are you asking them about their sleep? You know, this is not a pressing concern right now. But sure enough, you start asking people about their sleep and you start to realize how many people don't sleep well. You know, it's something you can take for granted, um, especially when you're in a sleep deprived existence, right? As a resident, so you, you sleep and you kind of recognize the value of sleep to your own well-being. And then when you start to see that your patients are struggling with sleep, sometimes to an extent that interferes with the very disease process you're trying to treat or with their quality of life or both. Um, it really opens your eyes to this whole other dimension of their existence that I previously wasn't even aware of. And so in my own continuity clinic, then I started asking more about it. And, you know, the more I asked, the more fascinated I became with the whole idea of sleep-wake disorders and the role that these play, particularly in my patients at that time who have comorbid neurological disease. And I ended up um, practicing general neurology for two years. And in that time, again, kept asking my patients about 
you know, their sleep and symptoms related to sleep. And at that point, I decided, well, I should just do the fellowship. <laughs> so I did a sleep medicine fellowship. And since that time, I've slowly transitioned my practice to being a mix of sleep medicine and neurology to the point where now I'm doing 100% sleep medicine. So I'm going to ask you a, a tangential question, and, and we don't have to go too far deep into it, but it's an interesting one to point out for students who maybe are going through this process. They they go to their residency and they're like, I, I don't know if I want to subspecialize. I'll just, I'll go out and be a general insert specialty here, and mm-hmm. then I'll go back and do fellowship. A lot of people potentially think like that and then never go back and do fellowship. What, what was that right. process like for you to actually go okay, I'm actually going to go back into fellowship. Yeah, it was something that took a while to come to that conclusion. You know, I I finished residency kind of with the knowledge of what I had been exposed to, which was a lot of inpatient neurology, some outpatient neurology. And I wasn't ready to give that up entirely to do subspecialty training, like the thought of diving deep into one subspecialty and kind of losing the breadth of general neurology wasn't appealing to me when I graduated from residency. So I really found comfort in practicing what I had trained to practice. Um, But then again, as I started to see patients, you know, more longitudinally, and they were my patients now as the attending, um, I really started to find that regardless of what their underlying neurological disease was, and regardless of the prognosis of that, which sometimes was you know, really challenging to deal with um, on an interpersonal level with patients and their families that if I could help my patients sleep better, I could help them improve their quality of life. And for me, that really resonated with why I went into medicine in the first place. And so I discovered that I could have that joy of practicing medicine with the patients I love with you know, the discipline that I love um, of neurology, but having a slightly different vantage point as a sleep medicine specialist. And so that's what really sealed the decision for me to uh, transition from being in practice to going back and doing a fellowship full-time. What are some of the biggest (laughs) myths or misconceptions around sleep medicine? I think for many people, it's an unknown. I think because we don't get that much exposure to sleep sleep medicine or to sleep-wake disorders in the course of our medical school training, or truthfully, for many people, even in the course of their residency training, I think many people don't realize that this is actually a viable career option. And and I think that's one of the biggest myths is that you can only... um, do it, you know, from a a certain type of training, you have to be a pulmonologist, for example, is one that I hear a lot, you know, I'm not a pulmonologist, so I can't be a sleep medicine specialist. And actually, we, by definition, at our core are a multidisciplinary specialty. And so there actually are seven training pathways from which you can enter a sleep medicine fellowship. So those are neurology, psychiatry, internal medicine, pediatrics, family medicine, anesthesiology, otolaryngology, So really, there are so many ways to um, become a sleep medicine specialist, and that's one of the most exciting parts about the field. Now, you're the program director for the Sleep Medicine Fellowship. What traits are you looking for in applicants, and what traits do you see as good traits for sleep medicine physicians? 
That's a great question. So one of the key things that we're looking for when we are reviewing applications and when we're meeting people in person during their interviews is really to get a sense of their passion for sleep medicine. You know, why did they want to pursue subspecialty training in sleep medicine? What are their career goals? And it's really looking for that passion. And one of the exciting things about being a multidisciplinary specialty is that people have such different stories in terms of mentors or experiences, whether personal experiences or experiences with family members or with patients of what really opened their eyes to the field of sleep medicine and what has drawn them to a career in sleep medicine. And so there's not one right or wrong way to enter sleep medicine. It's that diversity that we really cherish. Uh, But one of the things that we're really looking for is that passion of why does someone want to train in sleep medicine and what do they plan to do with that in their career? after fellowship training what types of trace what what types of patients are sleep medicine specialists treating or diagnosing or what what does that whole process look like Sure. So our fellowship training encompasses patients across the entire lifespan. So regardless of whether your residency focused primarily on adult patients or pediatric patients or a mix of both, um, we treat sleep-wake disorders in patients of all ages. Um, once people finish fellowship training, they may choose to gear their practice towards you know a certain age group, but the training encompasses uh, exposure to pediatric and adult patients. And so we see patients with a whole variety of sleep-wake disorders. So sleep-related breathing disorders, such as obstructive sleep apnea or sleep-related hypoventilation, uh, central sleep apnea, parasomnias, circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders, sleep-related movement disorders. Uh, These are just a handful of the types of um, disorders that we treat and the patients who we get to know and work with over the course of um, their lifetimes. Now, as a sleep medicine specialist, uh, a, a lot of students coming into this are fans of the hunt and the puzzle and trying to figure stuff out. As a sleep medicine specialist, are you the one actually diagnosing and figuring out and, and how complicated is that or, or are patients coming to you with a diagnosis and you're just figuring out treatment? Uh, Some of both. So we see some patients who are referred by their primary care physician and they have a diagnosis, for example, of obstructive sleep apnea and they, you know, would like our guidance um, with management or or same with, for example, restless leg syndrome or narcolepsy. In other situations, we are doing the initial consultation with the patient and then pursuing the diagnosis, um, diagnostic evaluation, and then coming up with a treatment plan with the patient. So As part of the certification as a sleep medicine specialist, we are certified to read sleep studies um, for uh, our patients and then, you know, to uh, proceed with formulating a treatment plan for them as well. Nice. A little little bit of everything. What does a typical day look like for you? So a typical day um, can be a mix of seeing patients in the clinic and reading sleep studies. Um, For some of our colleagues, they do inpatient consults as well. So some of the inpatients we may see may have um, uh, issues with their 
breathing during sleep that are interfering with um, their treatment course in the hospital or, you know, somehow more deeply tied to their admitting diagnosis. Uh, for an example, we have consulted before on patients who are admitted with preeclampsia and you know, it turns out on screening that there is a concern about possible obstructive sleep apnea. So we will see those patients um, in consultation while they're in the hospital, do a sleep study at the patient's bedside. And if it does show obstructive sleep apnea, get them started on CPAP therapy with the goal of helping facilitate better response to blood pressure management and hoping that the patient can then get to as close to full term as possible. Um, so that's an example of a patient we might see in the inpatient setting. Uh, otherwise, the majority of our practice is done in the outpatient setting in clinic. Now, for a lot of residencies and fellowships, there's a large percentage of that is done inpatient. Is that the same for the sleep medicine fellowship or is a lot of that outpatient? So the majority of the training is outpatient. So a mix of adult and pediatric sleep medicine clinics. Uh, the the inpatient consultation is definitely a, a smaller portion of what we do overall. Yeah. For the students who like to, to use their hands and do procedures, is there any potential for that as a sleep medicine specialist? So for sleep medicine specialists in general, uh, we are not doing invasive procedures. Uh, the procedures that we are doing is the interpretation of the sleep studies. Uh, for our colleagues who are board certified in otolaryngology or anesthesiology, pulmonology, and also sleep medicine, then in the course of their um, approach to sleep medicine, they may be doing you know, nasal, nasal pharyngoscopy, for example, as part of the evaluation of a patient with uh, sleep-related breathing disorder. But um, for those of us who come from backgrounds that don't encompass that training, then we don't tend to do those types of procedures. Now, this sounds like a, a silly question, but call for a sleep medicine specialist. Like, does, does a patient call in the middle of the night and says, doc, I can't sleep, like fix me. <laughs> that's, a, that's a question we often get. So it's not <laughs> a silly question at all. So most of our calls overnight do not come from the patients directly. They come from our technologists who are uh, staffing the studies that are being run overnight in the sleep center. And so the biggest reasons that we get called in the middle of the night are if the patient is having severe hypoxemia that requires um, some intervention um, and or if there is an arrhythmia that uh, the technologist feels that we, the physician on call needs to know about, then those are the biggest reasons that we get called um, overnight from the sleep lab. Is there anything that forces you to go in at all? Um, no, Simon. You know, <laughs> generally we are not going in. Um, we do have the capability of accessing our sleep study software remotely. You know, once we're in the system and, and um, credentialed and all of that, then we can access that remotely. So we are able to, for example, look at a rhythm strip. Yeah. Uh, from the sleep study if we are concerned about a certain type of arrhythmia. Um, depending on the context of the patient, you know, we can advise the, the technologist to either continue running the study, but make sure this is flagged as a high priority study to be read first thing, you know, upon completion of the study, or, you know, if it's a dangerous arrhythmia, we may say, you know, actually, please, let's terminate the study and, and send the patient down to the emergency department. Yeah, makes sense. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of being a doctor? Absolutely. I think that's one thing that also 
appeals to people who pursue a career in sleep medicine is um, work-life balance is attainable and is achievable. Um, and you also can pursue a number of different career pathways within sleep medicine. So obviously with me being at the University of Michigan, I've chosen an academic medicine career path. Definitely have many friends and colleagues in sleep medicine who work in a private practice setting or group practice setting. Uh, others who do fully clinical work, others who do fully research or a mix of both. Um, there's a lot of room for advocacy as well. Uh, as you may imagine, you know, with all of the wearable technologies and other remote monitoring technologies that are now available direct to consumer, there's a lot of interest in sleep and how uh, tracking sleep and measuring sleep uh, interfaces with these technologies. So it's a really exciting time in our field to see, you know, where can we go with sleep science and integration with these other interfaces and how can we best serve our patients? Yeah, there's there's rumors that Apple's new watch will will have some sleep stuff built into it, but I haven't seen any official announcements yet. I'm excited. Right. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see what that looks like. Yes, definitely. So for the the residents applying for a sleep medicine a fellowship, you, you talked a little bit earlier about kind of the passion behind sleep medicine and why they want to do this and what they want their career to look like. Besides the passion, what else helps a an applicant stand out? Is it is it strictly going back to step one scores back back when we still had step one scores, or right. what <laughs> is it letters of recommendations? What what helps a, an applicant? Yeah, so we we really do, and I can only speak for our program, but we really do take a holistic application review approach to looking at the entire candidate. You know, not just piecemeal looking at certain components of the application. So we don't have any hard stop, go, no go type of things within the application. So we really are looking at the whole person and the whole um, application uh, when we receive applications for our fellowship. Uh, one thing I, some pieces of advice I would give to students who are considering a uh, career in sleep medicine and considering applying um, for residents who are considering applying is to seek out an elective experience in sleep medicine. Uh, for many residency programs, sleep medicine rotation is not considered core. And so it's possible to go through a three or four year residency without having done a sleep medicine rotation. So the best way to experience what that's like is to do an elective in it. And so I think that that can be very valuable in terms of of getting the you know the insider's view of what does the field look like on a day-to-day -day basis and can help fuel that passion because then you start to see those patients start to see uh, sleep studies um, and get to be a little bit more involved in that regard um, for those who are interested in doing a residency research project i think you know getting involved in something related to sleep medicine can also help as well and again with us being multidisciplinary there are so many ways to interface with other specialties that um, that can be a really fun and exciting way to get more exposure to the field as well. What opportunities are there to further subspecialize if, if there are any once you are a sleep medicine specialist? 
So there's no formal sub-subspecialization within sleep medicine, um, as happens in many fields. You know, people will sometimes develop their own niche and area of expertise. So at a given institution, someone may be known as the narcolepsy expert or the restless leg syndrome expert, but it's not that they've done a separate training or separate certification to have that designation. It's usually, again, people following their their passion and their career interests um, and seeing where that takes them. But all of us have the same training and certification in sleep medicine. How competitive is it? So it's one, again, that, you know, a lot of people, I think, don't know about. So um, they're definitely, there's a pretty good match between the number of applicants and number of spots available. On any given year, there are sometimes more spots available than there are applicants. So we are always trying to, um, you know, get more people into the field, especially when you look at the burden of disease overall and the number of patients um, in the United States and even worldwide with um, undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea, even, you know, let alone all of the other diagnoses that we treat, insomnia, circadian rhythm, sleep disorders, um, and so on. So there is definitely a, a mismatch right now between the number of sleep medicine specialists and the number of patients who would benefit from sleep medicine specialty care, uh, especially when you look at anticipated physician shortages and the number of physicians that will be retiring, you know, in years to come. So it's definitely a field for which there's a need and there definitely are, you know, positions available for those who would like to pursue this training. For the the future primary care doc listening to this, what do you want them to know about sleep medicine and what you're doing day in and day out as a sleep medicine specialist to help their patients potentially overcome any sort of illnesses earlier, faster, and help you do your job? Absolutely. Our partnership with our primary care uh, colleagues is invaluable to us because, again, if you look at the number of patients who have sleep-related complaints and or undiagnosed sleep disorders, uh, our primary care colleagues are really oftentimes the, you know, the, the first um, interaction that patients have uh, in terms of even discussing these symptoms and their concerns. And so um, I would encourage our colleagues to ask about sleep-related symptoms, ask about, about um, daytime energy level, daytime sleepiness, quality of life. And if they have concerns about a possible undiagnosed sleep disorder, we are more than happy to see those patients and to collaborate together to work towards um, optimal quality of life and, and optimizing sleep health. For the osteopathic student or resident listening to this who wants to go into sleep medicine, is there anything they have to do to overcome any potential negative bias? No, we welcome you completely and totally. Uh, we had just in our uh, fellowship class who graduated in June 2020, um, two of our uh, fellows are, have osteopathic degrees. So um, again, I can only speak for my program, but um, we, we don't view that as a negative. Uh, we view all osteopathic and allopathic applicants the same. And I have um, friends and colleagues who are uh, sleep medicine fellowship program directors who are osteopathic trained as well. So uh, the field is very welcoming to osteopathic and allopathic applicants. Great. What other specialists or specialties do you work the closest with? 
The majority of people who are applying to sleep medicine are probably um, internal medicine, family medicine, and neurology. Um, then after that, probably, um, yeah, and then uh, pediatrics, and then psychiatry, probably less often anesthesiology and otolaryngology. Um, so again, I think if anyone out there is listening and is uh, pursuing residency training in one of those fields, um, and we would strongly encourage you and welcome you into the field of sleep medicine, because I do think that there are um, ways in which your specialty expertise will help patients uh, in a way that's different from, you know, others of us in the field. Um, in terms of on a day-to-day -day basis collaboration, I think we collaborate a lot with um, the referring providers and at least uh, here at our institution, that's a pretty wide base. So for example, just today I saw a patient who was referred by an electrophysiologist because she has persistent atrial fibrillation that's not responding to treatment and they're concerned about comorbid obstructive sleep apnea. So, um, so we'll be collaborating there with her cardiologist and the patient you know, to, to optimize treatment there. Um, we get referrals from primary care, which we can include, you know, internal medicine, family medicine, pediatrics, uh, med peds, um, uh, referrals from neurology, for example, for patients with migraine headaches that are refractory and um, there may be a comorbid sleep disorder um, alongside the migraine diagnosis. So we, we end up working a lot um, on that end, you know, for patients who are referred to us when we are referring to other specialties, we are often referring to our surgical colleagues in otolaryngology, oral and maxillofacial surgery uh, for non-positive airway pressure treatments of obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, we collaborate with our dental colleagues if we are pursuing possible dental treatment for a sleep-related breathing disorder for obstructive sleep apnea. Um, and so there, there's a lot of collaboration that um, crosses disciplines. And, and that's one of the really exciting and fun parts of the field is that we get to work with so many different types of people on a regular basis. It keeps it very dynamic and very fun. What do you like the most about being a sleep specialist? I love that when people sleep better, they feel better. And for me, that's why I wanted to become a doctor in the first place. I wanted to help people feel better. And so when I see that over the course of time working with patients that they say, you know, I can engage so much more now in my work and with my family and I feel better and I have energy now to exercise. Like to me, that's so gratifying. And that is my favorite part of clinical sleep medicine. Uh, my other role as program director, I absolutely love mentoring um, our colleagues who are coming into the field and seeing their career aspirations and helping them get there. So those are the two parts of my job that I absolutely love. And that's what gets me to wake up every morning and, and come to work. Besides charting, what's your least favorite part of being a sleep medicine specialist? Um, so I happen to love charting. So <laughs> Darn it. There's always one. Um, so, you know, like, like many disciplines, we do have to have a prior authorization process for getting sleep studies for, um, prescribing certain medications for our patients. And so, you know, there can be some 
um, frustrations either on behalf of you know the clinicians or on behalf of the patients about those processes. Um, and so we, we do our best to streamline those and to come up with kind of standardized workflows so that we can minimize any potential time delays to getting um, diagnostic uh, testing and to getting treatment initiated for our patients. Yeah, another very common one, uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Do you, yes. do you see any major changes coming to the field of sleep medicine that that m- may be important for a student or resident to understand that may impact their decision to become a sleep medicine specialist? Yeah, I think we're on the cusp of really exciting things. I think clinical the clinical evaluation is always going to be there. That need is always going to be there, you know, obtaining the history and discerning, you know, do I think this is insomnia or do I think this is a circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorder? Or do I think there are some components of both? I I think that portion of our role will always be there. I think what stands to evolve and where a lot of the excitement is, is in our diagnostics. So right now we uh, study patients in the sleep lab. We do home sleep apnea testing and we We are talking more and more about wearable technology and what is the role for that in the diagnosis and long-term management of our patients. Um, The role of artificial intelligence in terms of what other information can we glean from polysomnography, from the sleep studies that we don't currently glean because we're not looking at the data in that way. So I think that the field will evolve as these technologies evolve and that puts us in a position to serve our patients better and need to access um, information from the data we're already collecting in a way that we're not yet doing uh, that will provide new insights and potentially new treatment options too. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a sleep medicine specialist? A hundred percent. I love what I do. Any last words of wisdom for the student or resident listening to this thinking, maybe I want to be a sleep medicine specialist now. Yeah, then go with that, you know, try to see if you can get a rotation in your local sleep clinic uh, that will give you some exposure to seeing patients in the clinic and also to reading sleep studies. Um, If you do have an inkling to do research or if you do have a requirement to do research, then trying to get involved with a project, you know, however large or small in scope. Uh, can be a really interesting way to get to read some of the literature and get to know uh, other people who practice sleep medicine. And even for those who are thinking, well, this sounds interesting, but I don't want to necessarily do a fellowship. Um, I hope maybe you'll change your mind and that you will think about doing a sleep medicine fellowship. But I would encourage you, regardless of what field you are going into or field you're considering right now, to ask your patients about their sleep. Because it's oftentimes something that patients won't readily talk about unless they are asked about it. And once they are asked about it, I think you will be amazed at how many times disordered sleep or suboptimal sleep really influences our patients' overall health and their quality of life. And so I think it's a service that we can provide to our patients by asking the question and then delving further depending on what they tell us. All right. Go ahead. Sorry. No, please go ahead. I was going to say one, one 
final kind of quick win for the student listening to this to improve their sleep. Are, are you a fan of the turn your devices off 30 minutes before bed or uh, the yellow sunglasses to block out the blue light, any of that kind of stuff to help our students listening to this? Yeah, absolutely. So I think optimal sleep health starts with ourselves and, you know, um, we often have to recenter even those of us that, that practice this day in, day out. Um, that, you know, sometimes we have to take a, a hard and fast look at our own habits and our own behaviors and kind of recenter. So absolutely, uh, there's a role for what we call optimal sleep hygiene and improving our overall health and optimizing our sleep. So yes, yeah, some, some um, things that we always recommend are to minimize, potentially totally put away the ret- electronics, but at least minimize use of electronics of at least an hour prior to bedtime. If it's absolutely imperative that you must use some sort of electronic device, then um, have a blue light filter on it so that it's um, emanating warmer color wavelength light rather than um, the blue wavelength, which is the most alerting to the brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, Having a consistent sleep-wake schedule, so trying to go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time as much as possible. I understand for our friends and colleagues who, to work shifts um, in order to, you know, um, help patients at all hours of the day that sometimes that's not possible, but as much as you can have that consistency, it helps with optimizing your sleep as well. And then, you know, keeping caffeine to earlier times of the day, not too close to bedtime and with alcohol also trying to have your last drink about three hours before bedtime. So you have enough time to metabolize it and it has um, lesser effects on your sleep architecture in that regard. All right. Any other last words of wisdom or advice for anyone out there? So uh, I would encourage you to prioritize your own sleep health Mm -hmm. and to ask your patients about their sleep. And if they start to raise um, symptoms or the bed partner starts to raise concerns that um, you would like to pursue further, then you know, please refer them on to a sleep medicine specialist. And hopefully one day you have the opportunity to uh, be part of a sleep medicine clinic as well. And we would love to see you join our field. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to keep this going because I see, I I get these little nudges to go, Oh, I'm going to ask another good question. So you talked about asking the patients about their sleep hygiene, right? And and I think as we go through medical school, we learn a lot of these amazing questions and how to ask them. But again, sleep isn't something that we actually learn about and how to ask about because do you sleep isn't necessarily probably a great question. What, what is a simple, easy question to get that conversation going? I mean, you could even start well with, you know, how is your sleep? How well do you sleep? You know, do you feel rested after a night's sleep? Um, And, you know, starting there just to see what the kind of an open-ended question um, to see what the patient says. And if they say, no, actually, I'm, I'm always tired, but I just deal with it. You know, then you can start to ask some more probing questions. Well, you know, what, what, tell me about your nighttime routine. Um, Ask about what time is dinner? What does your wine routine look like? What does, you know, what time are you going to bed? How long does it take to fall asleep? Um, What time are you waking up? And then, you know, kind of go from there. One thing that we always highlight with our fellows um, as we're talking about components of the sleep history is that 
we are talking about, you know, many sleep-related disorders, but it's important to ask about wake-related symptoms as well. For example, excessive daytime sleepiness. You know, someone who may have frequent fragmentation of their sleep may actually have subsequent daytime sleepiness. So to ask about things like functioning at work, functioning at school, what types of grades are they getting? Um, are they getting reprimanded for their job performance? Uh, what are their interpersonal relationships like? Are they noticing any mood effects from not sleeping well? Uh, depending on their job or even if they're driving a car, you know, do they feel sleepy while driving? Because then you go from having an individual health concern to a public health concern, right? If someone is sharing the roadways with uh um, somebody who's sleepy, that, that can be a real problem. If someone's in a very sensitive occupation like medicine or, um, you know, first responders or a number of other occupations that require people to really be um, alert and on task, uh, you know, that can have a, a lot of implications in terms of overall performance. So asking about not only sleep-related symptoms, but even how well someone's functioning during the day. All right, so there you have it. Again, Dr. Anita Sheljikar. If you are potentially interested in sleep medicine, go check out the Sleep Medicine Society, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine at aasm.org. I hope you enjoyed our episode today. Don't forget to subscribe so that you get more great episodes when we release them. If you are a pre-med student, don't forget to go check out MAPPED, M-A-P-P-D.com. It is now open to the public for public beta. You can go sign up for a free two-week trial. Go track your courses, get your GPA feedback. Go track your courses and see your GPA trends. Enter in your MCAT practice tests and real scores. Enter your activities and diary entries. Start to build your med school list and more. We had an amazing development team meeting this morning and laid out the next several months of work to make MAPT the best pre-med resource for every pre-med who wants to go to medical school. Again, that's MAPT, M-A-P-P-D dot com. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. 